Thanks for listening to this episode of Oppenheimer's Let's Talk Future podcast series. In this episode, our guest is Don Rattucci, Managing Director of Healthcare M&A, and our host is Stefan Loren, PhD, Managing Director of Life Sciences, both of Oppenheimer. This episode was recorded on November 2nd, 2021. Please subscribe to our channel to instantly access previous episodes. Subscribing also means you won't miss out on new episodes with our thought leaders who bring you timely and relevant insights about the markets, investing, business, new technologies, and life in general. Hello and welcome back to another edition of Oppenheimer's Let's Talk Future podcast. I'm your host, Stefan Lauren, and I'm very excited to have with us today a new addition to the Oppenheimer Investment Banking Team, Mr. Don Rattucci, who heads up the group's healthcare M&A practice. Don, welcome and glad to have you with us today to talk a little bit about the trends in mergers and acquisitions and what's in store for the space as we round the corner into 2022. So Don, I'm gonna turn it over to you just for a minute to give a, a brief introduction of your background. Fire away. Well, Stefan, thank you very much. It's great to be here. I've been looking forward to doing this podcast with you ever since we talked about it a few months back. And so it's been a great transition here to to Oppenheimer. I joined in January. I've been doing banking for about 25 years. I started my career at UBS, a bulge bracket firm, but I've been doing middle market really for the past 15 years. And I've focused on, on healthcare and healthcare M&A. And as you mentioned, I lead up our healthcare M&A effort here. The platform here has been has been great so far. It really has allowed us, given the size and scale that we have, to pursue M&A transactions, not only in the services side of the fence, which is where we have done more and more transactions historically, but on the life sciences side where there's plenty of opportunity and, and we're off to the races already. So let's dive right in. Let's talk about the drivers behind uh, M&A in the healthcare space. What are they right now and how do you see them changing over the next few months to few years? Yeah, there are a number of drivers. I think if you look at it first from a macro perspective, if you if you look at just in terms of how well capitalized both strategics and private equity firms are and they're acquisition hungry, we're, we're seeing a robust level of activity. In fact, just this week alone, we've closed two transactions. Hopefully, we're going to get a third one closed this week. So we're, we're, we're trying for the trifecta, which has been great. That coupled with the, the bullish stock market, obviously, that translates to confidence in the boardrooms and CEOs. And then, and then you can't have that discussion without COVID. That running its course from the epidemic to the pandemic, and hopefully now we're entering the endemic phase of that. And I guess lastly, there was a bunch of potential tax catalysts that were out there too, in terms of changes in tax regulations and laws, and we'll see where that ends up. On the, but more specifically on the services, on the healthcare side, you're seeing big pharma continue to be interested in biotech companies really at the frontier of science, such as mRNA technologies. We're seeing cell and gene therapy, next generation therapeutics, digital analytic capabilities. I mean, we saw even access to pipeline with with or range of, of platform and technologies. We saw that on the Acosti Pharma Grace Therapeutics deal that we worked on together, which was a great outcome for our client. Yeah, so it sounds like you've got a lot of roads coming together favoring M&A, everything from capital and low cost of capital. You've got numbers of companies out there and you've also got uh, hungry big companies as well. So I think that's a great uh, recipe for success here. So. Let's talk a little bit about the increased access to capital. And you mentioned it a little bit, but is that having a positive effect or a negative effect net net? Because as companies, especially small companies, have high access to capital, 
they can go it alone. So what are you saying? It's a fair point, but I think what's really trumping that is just the amount of cash that's out there in capital. If you look at the S&P 500 companies, they have a record $1.9 trillion, at least as of July, on their balance sheet. I mean, that's enough to cover President Biden's you know, entire infrastructure plan to put things in perspective. I mean, it's it's really overwhelming. And if you look at U.S. corporates in total, it's almost $4 trillion worldwide it's almost seven trillion so there's a lot of powder out there to do deals and speaking of powder on the private equity side there's another 1.9 trillion dollars so we're seeing that i think that really trumps what capital the targets may have just because there is so much appetite to do acquisitions now you mentioned tax changes and anytime you mention tax i guess a lot of uh, folks in the biotech industry and farm industry and healthcare get a little bit nervous but Specifically, what were those tax changes that may be helping to drive the industry forward to combine? I guess we're in a little bit of unknown right now, given the latest infrastructure bill and where that's going to end up. A lot of the tax projected increases appear to be off the table, but we'll see. That clearly, though, drove M&A in the second half that we're seeing this year. In fact, we just recently closed a, a transaction where there was a provision in there where the seller had the opportunity to essentially terminate the deal. It wasn't completed by 1231 because of, of potential tax changes. That clearly drove that. Now, it was a bit of a double-edged sword. We ran a very, very aggressive process from a timeline perspective. And quite frankly, we probably spooked a number of really good buyers because of the, the deadlines that we were that we hit. Ultimately, it was a good transaction for, for our client. And that's back to one of the deals that they closed yesterday. Great. So... Buyers often have the choice to license or acquire assets going either way. What factors do you think influence the decision to go in one direction versus the other? It's an interesting debate. It really is. There's no right or wrong answer if, if you think about it. It really depends on the, the purchaser strategy. It depends on their situation. So I think there's different opinions on this one. Uh, in essence, those that like to control their own destiny are more apt for an acquisition. It results in total transfer and control uh, over the asset, particularly around things like market exclusivity, which is an important driver. Others that don't want to take that risk of going to market, look at it, the binary risk, that look at it as a license deal, and they reserve acquisitions for marketed products or broad technology platforms. So it really depends. There was interesting discussion with two large pharma companies, the business development executives there, and uh, the takeaway there was a lot of times they really look at their targets and let the targets decide what do they want to do in terms of staying independent or or maybe an acquisition. You know, that reminds me so from my time in pharmaceuticals, and I, I know I've told this story many times before, but if you rent and the deal goes south, not really a big problem. If you buy the company and the deal goes south, you're looking for a new job. So I think there's a lot of bias that has to be really circumvented inside some of the big pharmas and some of the bigger biotechs as they look at building versus acquisition or building versus licensing. So that's always a, a human factor that we can never underestimate. We were talking about this just a second ago about uh, big pharma and a number of years back, the mega mergers were all the rage and combinations were happening multiple ones every year. But in my opinion, I think investors finally got wise that two dogs really don't make a kennel. And uh, going forward, do you, do you see a return to this mega merger environment or a continuation of more of what we're seeing now, a lot of large, on medium companies or medium on small companies or large on small companies. How do you think that's gonna go? 
Look, I'm a dog person, and, and speaking of two dogs, I actually have two cats, so I have to give out a shout-out to my, my two cats that are more dog-like than anything else. But I think that you're really onto something there. If you look at the largest healthcare deals in 2021, the top 10 deals, none of them are what I would characterize as big pharma. A couple of them are the biotech, SPAC type of deals. But we haven't seen that at all in, in the last five years. So from 2016, 17, 18, 19, 20, all of those have had big pharma type of deals in the top 10. And now we're not done with, with 2021. We'll see. Roach Holdings, their controlling family shareholder came out and they actually said that the days of big merger are, are over. In fact, Andre Hoffman, who's the, the independent vice chairman there said, I'm going to quote him, undoubtedly, the age of mega mergers is finished. He said that in an interview in September, which is pretty interesting, gives perspective, obviously, a, a well-known name in the big pharma space. That reminds me, um, I used to give talks frequently in the pharmaceutical industry uh, circles. And for those of you interested, just Google uh, an old talk of mine called the Pharma Titanic. It's time to root for the iceberg. We talked about a lot of these kinds of issues. So moving on just a little bit, let's talk a little bit about obviously the elephant in the room. We're still, you mentioned COVID before. COVID had a profound effect on all aspects of the healthcare business. How did this impact the M&A landscape? What happened when COVID started and where are we now? And what do you see for next year? On COVID, that clearly had a chilling effect on M&A. I had the unfortunate experience of, of dealing with that firsthand on a transaction that ultimately didn't go through when we were truly at the one yard line. So this was a deal that was fully negotiated the definitive agreement. We had fully negotiated ancillary agreements, whether it was the employment agreements, and it was a strategic acquire. And in the midst of, of COVID, they really had to pull the plug on that one. And, and that deal didn't get done. There was a chilling effect on that. But what we did see is there was a bounce back and there was a bounce back that like we've seen no other. And that has led to really the M&A market and the environment that we're in today. And we're at all time highs. And when you look at from a life sciences perspective, they were sidelined, but they have come back and there's been a number of, of mega deals that have, that have happened. The AstraZeneca deal for Alexion happened at the end of 2020. But we also saw the rise of SPACs. And on the SPAC front, they raised over $3 billion targeting biotechs in, in 2020. And so that was roughly over half of the IPOs raised in 2020. So clearly free-flowing capital on that front. And I guess the other thing is, how does one kick the tires during COVID? Doing an M&A, you want to acquire a company, but you have to walk the facility. Are the facilities really there? And at the end of the day, as I said, over Zoom, it's just impossible to kick the tires. And I think that had an interesting effect. And once the vaccines got out there, it's just amazing how one event in the medical community can have such a profound impact all the way through the business aspects. So once uh, people got vaccinated, there's been a lot more free travel. Kudos to all those, by the way, lab workers, because those people never left work ever during the COVID shutdown. It's interesting what you said about not being able to kind of kick the tires. What ultimately happened though, people did get comfortable with Zoom diligence, if you will, and they didn't kick tires. And it was almost like you heard in the epidemic, people that were leaving big cities were buying houses sight unseen. Now we didn't see sight unseen, but we, we saw certainly companies buying other companies without doing that proverbial walkthrough of the tour of the facilities. 
timing is very interesting there of everything because it definitely had a massive pickup post-vaccine and post people getting a little bit more comfortable. So let's move on just a little bit. What are the subsectors been hot over the last couple of years? And what do you think over the next two years? Across healthcare, biotech clearly has been one of the hottest sectors. So over 20% of, of all deals. Digital health is another one. Probably no surprise there. There's, there's a lot going on in that space. That's just under 20% of the deals. You know, broadly, pharmaceuticals have been very active. Medical device as well has been active. And then, and then services. So those are the areas. And we're seeing it both on the larger deals as well as on some of the sub-billion dollar deals. The market continues to be very hot. And we're at a point now, we were working on a sell side uh, recently. And one of the common features now on private companies is rep and warranty insurance. And we were in a situation where the buyer had to go to three underwriters to get the rep and warranty insurance. And we haven't seen that. Very recently, we had a discussion and one of the rep and warranty insurers said, look, no mas, we are not doing any more healthcare underwriting for the rest of 2021. Just goes to show in terms of the level of activity that we're seeing. Now that's interesting because that's probably when they entered into that original agreement, they had no idea that that was going to be a barrier. So you mentioned SPACs earlier and $3 billion raised in the SPAC market. What impact has that had on the prices of assets, the prices of potential mergers? I mean, obviously there's a lot of competition now. Are the small companies that are going into these SPACs or medium-sized private companies going in is that raising the price versus pharma or pharma more apt to buy, or I should say healthcare public companies more apt to buy larger companies, public companies, private companies? What's the thought on the impact, specific impact of all that money that flowed into the space and SPACs? SPACs have, have certainly have cooled off. You see now the, the challenges about raising a, a pipe, but, but look, SPACs are, I think are here to stay. The whirlwind days that we've saw in, in 2020 and earlier 2021 are, are, are probably gone, but it certainly has led to seller expectations in terms of what they want for pricing. But really, when it comes down to, I think the seller has to be honest with themselves and say, do they want to be a public company and should they be a public company? That's where the rubber meets the road. And valuation aside, if that company is not ready to be public, they're going to face some challenges, but but clearly it, it has impacted pricing or at least pricing expectations really have gone through the roof because of the SPACs. Let's talk a little bit more shifting to the regulatory and governmental aspects of M&As. Recently, the FTC recently signaled a more aggressive stance on its antitrust policy and potential uh, enforcement actions. Uh, and I think the Biden administration made it very clear when they were first coming into the office, uh, this was going to be an inevitability. What impact do you think the FTC stance is going to have on M&As in the space and timing, uh, cost to get two companies together and just impact on companies' willingness to merge? Well, I'll tell you, Stefan, there's a lot to unpack on that one. In a nutshell, this is another one that's got a chilling effect on deals and the politics around antitrust is really unprecedented. We just saw it last week, the FTC came out and they're restoring a, a pre-1995 practice of requiring merger enforcement settlements to obtain prior approval. So what does that mean? That if you enter into a settlement with the FTC, what happens is going on a go forward basis, that company is gonna have to go to FTC for 
approval on future transactions. It doesn't matter what the size of that transaction is. And not only is it within the market, it's within quote unquote broader markets to be determined on what that means. And that's for a minimum of 10 years. And, and so that, that's one, that's one of many. I think that if you read the tea leaves earlier this year, when for HSR notification review, the threshold had reduced a couple million bucks. Now that's not a material amount, but it went from 94 to $92 million. That's the first time that's happened in a very long time. There's been the temporary suspension. I say temporary, this has been going on now for over 18 months of early termination. And, and so that's ongoing. The FTC is also renewing the practice of issuing warning letters, which is basically telling companies that if they waited after the 30 days, that the FTC may not have had sufficient time to review, and they could still review that transaction and potentially unwind it. There are, so there are a number of fronts. I didn't even mention the vertical merger guidelines that the FTC is going to withdraw. You saw that earlier this year with the Illumina Grail, which was a vertical merger. And the FTC, that deal's closed, but the FTC has made noises about unwinding. That's a $7.1 billion deal. And so there's a lot there. You know, that's a, that's a really big and important event that happened in the healthcare industry is the uh, Illumina Grail merger. And just to, to dive into that a little bit, the Illumina folks decided to proceed, even though that they knew that there were objections I'm not sure how long that's going to take to unwind or, or if it will unwind, but it would seem to me that ultimately we're going to be seeing some uh, Supreme Court action on this. And maybe that's going to establish uh, the guidelines here. But any thoughts? Well, look, it'd be really interesting to see how that plays out. And and so TBD, I guess, I'm following that one closely. It's really interesting. Look, we, we haven't even talked about it. I mean, you mentioned FTC. We would be remiss without even talking about what's going on in Europe. The antitrust screws in Europe have been tightening for a while, but we're now seeing that in Asia as well. And in fact, there are 130 jurisdictions worldwide you have to go through some type of antitrust approval for. That's almost getting to be an impossibility to do these sorts of mega mergers. So maybe that's yet another reason why we're not seeing as many of the massive multinational mergers these days. Interesting. So now to move on from uh, antitrust, but a little bit more in terms of what's going through Congress now, and you did mention it, we still don't know what's happening with HR3 and the budget and those sorts of things, but at least the original versions had some very draconian measures for drug reimbursement and for medical device reimbursement. So there's a lot of talk about uncertainty. And as we all know, you know, nature may abhor a vacuum, but Wall Street abhors uncertainty. If there is a potential looming lower reimbursement for drugs and medical devices, what do you see that doing to mergers and acquisitions? I mean, one could see one hand, it might accelerate it because you need to have two companies coming together to rationalize. And the other hand, it may make all the assets worth less. What are your thoughts? It's a real interesting one. That one, clearly it creates uncertainty. And, and while it does create uncertainty, I think overall it could be a positive for the industry. And, and why? Look, large pharma has historically used M&A to innovate. And they use it to work more efficiently, to bolster product portfolios. And that's not likely to change anytime soon, in, in my view. It also could help them lower R&D expenses and accelerate R&D timelines. I think that same holds true on the medical device side as well. And those type of companies are going to be pressed to innovate and look for new capabilities such as remote patient monitoring, 
We saw that with the Philips acquisition of, of Biotelemetry, which was completed in February of this year. It's about the $2.8 billion acquisition. So I think overall, maybe not so much at the big pharma, the big pharma. We've already talked about that. But this is maybe another reason why it's a little bit of the haves and the have-nots, where the smaller companies that aren't going to be able to deal with those lower prices are going to have to look for alternatives. And the larger companies, as we said, are so acquisitive. I think overall it could be a positive. So Don, we're, we're getting close to the end of our podcast here. So it's time for the lightning round. In just a few words, tell me right off the bat what comes to mind when you think about the hottest sector in healthcare M&A for 2022. Uh, predictions, Stefan. You know, the, the ancient Chinese philosopher and founder of Taoism, Lao Zhu, said, those who have knowledge don't predict, but those who predict don't have knowledge. So I'm going to leave you with that. But no, look, all, all seriousness, I think that on the life sciences side, we've talked about this a little bit more. Biotech that are on the biotechs that are on the frontier of science such as gene therapy, cell and gene therapy, and next-gen therapeutics is going to be a hot area. Innovative technologies in, in the point-of-care therapeutic space is going to be another one. That's on the life sciences side. On the services side, one of the things we really haven't talked about is the elective procedures that have become, there's been a built-up demand in that because of COVID. As COVID winds down, there's that pent-up consumer demand that's fueling, whether it's cosmetic, discretionary procedures. We're seeing more and more of that already. So that's going to be an area that's going to be hot as well. That's great. Well, I want to do thank you, Don, for joining us today on the Let's Talk Future podcast. And thank you to all of our listeners. We look forward to having you back again for another episode in the very near future. Thanks and have a wonderful day. Well, thanks, Stefan. It was a pleasure. I enjoyed it. And thanks for having me.